Welcome to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. My name's Michael Dooney, director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of the show. In today's episode, I'm speaking with gallerist Laura Noble. We caught up in London after the annual pilgrimage to Arles for the opening week of the photography festival where we met many years ago. Through her gallery and curatorial work, Laura focuses on contemporary photography with the majority of her represented artists being women. She's also a writer, collector and visual artist in her own right. We speak about her path to becoming a gallerist, building a photography collection, initiating a photography festival, a curatorial project Roy Meta Revival London, and she shares some valuable advice for emerging photographers. Be sure to follow Subtext and Discourse Artworld Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Laura Noble. So, Laura, really nice that we got to meet up. We just recently caught up in Arles, which very nice. Yes, feels like forever ago. Actually, it was two weeks was ago. It, I was going to say it's a fortnight. My God, already. Yeah. Yeah. But how was your still week? Hot. This still year? hot. Still hot. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, it felt like coming back to Arles, leaving Arles because it was 40 degrees two days ago. So, How long have you been going to Arles for? I was trying to work this out the other day. I think it's around 2004, maybe, maybe longer. I don't know. The first year I went, I went with Yvonne de Rosa, who I now represent, but who was then a good friend and had done this amazing book called Crazy God, which I'd written the text for. Her, myself and Nikki, another photographer, stayed above the Van Gogh Cafe in an apartment there. Oh, wow. Which she'd managed to procure the year before when she'd arrived in Arles without anywhere to stay and had sat down wearily with her suitcase and asked the uh, waiter who said, what can I get you? And she said, somewhere to stay. And I said, well, <laughs> upstairs is free. So we went there. I think to work it out, we could figure it out because it was a year there was a massive storm and there were almost floods in the town on the Saturday night and we had water pouring down the walls and tons of lightning and it was all very all very dramatic and, and kind of cool as well. And it wasn't as hot. It feels like it's getting hotter every year. Yeah, well, this year was the first year I've been there when it rained because every other year I've been, it's always sort of close to 30 degrees. And when it rained this year, I thought, well, this is a bit odd. Yeah, No, I've been there when there's been a couple of storms. It sort of builds up, the pressure builds up through the week. And then Friday, in fact, one year when La Croix had a fashion show. So back in the day when I'll used to have a curator of all the shows. They'd have a guest curator. So the year that Christian Lacroix did it, because he's from Arles, that particular year, he staged a fashion show and everything that a Lacroix fashion show wow. you can imagine. Yeah. You know, all the pomp and circumstance, all the gold, all the crazy shoes, all the giant dresses. And it was tipping it down with rain. And everyone was sat in the auditorium in the, in the you know, the Roman amphitheatre in... <laughs> waterproofs and they had people underneath the wa- the uh, catwalks they sort of built this catwalk and there were people underneath the catwalk holding the thing to stop it from wobbling and blowing over Gosh. and unbeknown you know and, and the models doing their thing yeah. above and how they walked in the shoes in the rain and nobody fell over is i think everyone <laughs> just held the breath for that section of the it was quite a thing and Kadelka was there that year as well it was a really weird contrast between Kadelka's work very you know photojournalism and amazing powerful black and white photography to the sort of opulence and ridiculousness of fashion next to it it was a really strange contrast but that was yeah that all was quite something some very noisy bird there yeah (laughs) yeah we're set out in the the garden of the nag's head the so. Nags Head in Walthamstow, <laughs> a fabulous pub uh, that doesn't allow children, which is why I, it's my local. <laughs> I like kids, but I can't eat a whole one. No. And certainly not with a drink in my hand. So yeah, it's a lovely pub. And she always plays good music and serves great wine. And What more could you want? And real ale, so everybody's happy. <laughs> so we met, I think, in Arles one year. And I suppose... Did we? I was trying to think of our yeah, origin I was trying, story. That's what I was wondering as well. Ah, and I ah. thought it must have been through the portfolio reviews because you've been doing the portfolio reviews yeah, for a long, long time. Yeah, long time, yeah. And I guess I've only ever known you as Laura Noble 
gallerist. <laughs> but you kind of gave us maybe a, a hint to how you started out because when you went to Arl initially, you were there and you'd written you'd written about photography. So yeah. really, what was your I mean, I your origin story for me. I mean, going to Arl was sort of on suggestion of Yvonne. You must come to this festival, and I was I think it must have been when I was starting to write the book on collecting because I'd start you know I'd started my collection at that point. Oh, you were collecting photography. Oh, yeah, I've been collecting photography since about two thousand. Yeah, God, twenty two years. Wow. Um, <laughs> let's not think about that. So it was a really good place to network, meet people, see things first because that's obviously their remit. So it's the oldest festival. But yeah, I was doing a lot of writing. It sort of happened. All the writing happened organically. Really, I studied fine art, predominantly painting printmaking, sculpture, drawing, all the usual. And when I graduated, I needed two things. I needed a library and I needed a studio. So I ended up working in a bookshop and got a studio. So it was one of those sort of, when I did move to the photographer's gallery and start specialising in terms of bookshop, specialising with photo books, just generally I, I felt like my brain was going dull. I needed something more stimulating than my job. I needed something to make me think to, you know, I'm somebody who loves to learn and read. And I started off writing little book reviews back in the day because it's quite early doors for websites. So I was doing recommendations on the website, which was very new at the time, things in the space. I wrote a piece, the first decent article I wrote So I'd been approached by Image Magazine with the AOP back as it was then. And I had four days, and this was when it was dial-up internet. Oh, wow. It was dial-up. In four days, I had to write a 2,000-word piece, which you just don't get anymore with magazines. I mean, people have no attention span, sadly, for that much anymore. Uh, Only a couple seem to do it, especially in the arts anyway. And it's badly paid now, so... What are you going to do? Yeah. But I had to, I had to write 2,000 words on why photography is a fine art, which was a question at the time. And I had to mention five exhibitions that were on at that time. So, And I had four days to do it. So it was quite a tall order, really, yeah. to get it, do it, edit it, get it in. And off the back of that, some other photographers saw the text and they'd been approached by image to do an interview with them they said only if this person does it oh so it obviously made an impact and it sort of rolled from there and i enjoyed writing about it obviously becoming obsessed with photo books and collecting those because most collectors of prints start with photo books anyway so i started writing about that still do as and when and as a result of that being asked to write text for photo books as well and you know so yeah that's that's continued whilst writing about and then later getting approached to write the book on collecting so again that sort of all tied in with all my interests in photography specifically I was still very engaged with painting and all the other art forms but in terms of sort of the academic side of what I do that's kind of where it started. Yeah I guess for you it sounds like writing the book about collecting I don't know for me even my sort of entry into running a gallery you need to learn about the art market. Yeah, oh, yes. You need to attend auctions. Yeah. You need to compare prices. You need to find the same print in three different galleries and see how much it costs at each one. See what the quality of the work is. Recognize what a silver gelatin looks like through glass rather than, you know, just being told it's a silver gelatin. You need to be able to recognize these things and what's a good print, mm-hmm. you know, additions, how they work, you know, what a modern print is compared to a vintage print. You know, there's a, a lot of myths about that. I have lots of conversations with people who have no idea. Yeah. And it, the stages of the careers they're at should do, but don't actually realise the definition of a vintage print. So things like that. Yeah, I mean, I learned through collecting. I learned through talking to lots of photographers, obviously reading, buying, attending things, buying something, investing in something, maybe selling something on later that I then reinvested that money into something else. Yeah. So again, it yeah, I mean, the market was interesting seeing, especially at that time, because things are really taking off in a way. So when was that? Sort of early 2000s. I mean, obviously 2008, everything in 2009, things started to shift again. But there was, you know, there was sort of a lot of, of tra- you know, the, the art by the square foot was a thing in the 90s and then it sort of shifted again and then there was a whole thing about China for five minutes and then it was heroin chic which lasted all of two th- seconds thank god yeah which never interested me anyway but 
people seem to care about. Because when you were writing about mm. collecting photography and maybe becoming a photography collector yourself, mm. was that around the time did you see that photography was increasing in value? Because when I've spoke to a few other gallerists, collectors mm-hmm. and other people, they were saying, well, they could have bought at the time, now they wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Like a lot of... There was that, but also I was looking back. So I was looking back to the 70s. I was looking back to the 60s, looking back to the 40s and seeing, you know, from the turn of the century and, and from, from its inception, how things were becoming valuable and how certain things you know the abcs of of the you know you could tell when somebody had probably had someone buy a photo collection for them because they'd have one of these one of those (laughs) and it wasn't particularly imaginative but also the value of different types of collection so it might not necessarily be individually that the pieces were massively valuable on their own individually but as a collection would work well so it might be a theme or a type of photography so it might be a certain you know might just be that somebody only collected a certain type of print that was quite rare or specific subject and it's also good i mean i i have sort of a few ongoing collections really but things that i tend to gravitate towards which also rein me in a bit from buying anything and everything yeah yeah, so what is your focus? So what do My, you look I, out for? If I, if I, I have may ask. a thing. Well, I have a few things, but mostly things that fly. Okay. So everything. I've like got a planes, lot of airplanes, birds. birds, helicopter. I've even got some sort of spaceship type thing, which is is photo etched denim of all things. So I've got all kinds of interesting, weird, wonderful things from that to like you know a ten pound thing I got on eBay <laughs> with all the red arrows signing above their heads on yeah. it in front of their planes, which is kind of you know in itself not worth anything but collectively with all that other stuff really works beautifully together yeah i also like weather okay rain especially and if i do collect people which is more rare because i generally i'm always surrounded by people so i don't like to come home to a crowd i tend to go for people not looking at the camera okay so eyes closed looking away looking to the side i don't need that engagement with a person yeah which is interesting because i have in the past you know had conversations with people who've said oh yeah i buy portraiture and i was like oh do you live alone and often they go yes oh interesting because it's company right yeah so i don't need that it's the last thing i need Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i need zen when i get home so yeah so those are sort of the three weather things that fly and anything sort of yeah with people it's generally they're they're sort of what would I say? Not surreal. There's just something magical about something. That, yeah. You know, but I, r- rarely do I buy a person. Okay. I'm, I mean, I think as well, it's always difficult because why do you want a photo of a stranger in your house? It's always a tough sell as well. Yeah. I and mean, you probably know that yourself being a gallerist. Portraiture's great. People tend to buy it for different reasons. I think there's, you know, nostalgia's one. So obviously something that's taken a long time ago has a different resonance 20, 30, 50, 100 years later. If it's someone famous, which yeah. of course really doesn't interest me, but might be a great photo of that particular person. Those things are always popular. But, you know, it's usually somebody famous who's used to being photographed. So it's not that difficult to take a good picture of them. Yeah. So I don't know how much excitement i can garner from that when people know that you like a certain thing like things that fly oh, yeah, away they sort of get you get inundated with it <laughs> <laughs> yes anyone who's taken a picture of anything that flies yes but sometimes it is just something very obscure and just magical that you kind of go oh hello yeah that's a bit amazing <laughs> but for me it's useful because it narrows down my focus a bit and i do like still life as well i mean i love objects and things but again it's it's usually something that's quite zen to look at for me. Yeah. Something quite calming, but not chocolate boxy. I'm not, you know, I'm not into sunsets and waterfalls. The slow waterfall brigade, don't knock on my door, please. <laughs> not my thing. <laughs> Long exposures, not my thing. Yeah, that's camera club, not for me. Yeah. And as beautiful as it is, and you know, but the the authorship's very, I think that's the thing. It's seeing the authorship of the work as well the individuality of that particular artist that's yeah. exciting you know you should be able to tell who took it not because all the pictures are the same but because it's difficult with photography eye. it's really hard yeah and that's why the slow waterfall brigade is difficult because it literally could be taken by the same person yeah you wouldn't know so yeah that's kind of my criteria i guess but yeah it's got to move you 
and you have to want to keep looking at it over and over and over again. And I do rotate things. So I don't keep the same things up all the time. Yeah. Because you stop looking at them. Or you become a bit complacent. You yeah. used to see you. Yeah. You see it so often that you don't see it. And anymore. your taste changes as well. I mean, you know, you don't you don't drink the same wine you first drank when you started drinking wine. You know, well, maybe you do, but <laughs> it, it, uh, <laughs> I, for most people, if you become your palate interested changes, in it, yeah. But you also, I think you're, you're getting attacked by wasps here. Yep. <laughs> I think your tastes evolve as well. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you. I don't know. You're looking for more sometimes. You're looking for refinement. You know, it's it's. I think also because there's so much of it, you have to pull out certain things really do stand out. You think, okay, yeah, this is a cut above. And perhaps I have been, you know, you have to really, I think you're probably the same because you look at so much of it. Yeah. You do just, you do clock it, it something great very quickly because it's obvious. Yeah, I, I agree. But it's very hard to describe what that thing is. So don't ask me, <laughs> please. Because <laughs> that's what everybody wants to know. Well, what is it about this? You know, it can be a, a whole number of things. It is. And I think it a lot maybe comes down to you, not necessarily your visual literacy, but just how much you've seen. And I think with music as well, it's the same. When you've heard so much or with yeah. movies, when you've seen so many of them, yeah. there is a, a certain quality maybe that is difficult to put into words. But yeah. Well, it's like music. I mean, you can hear the same piece of music, the same piece of opera, sung by three different sopranos, and one of them will just stand out because it's better. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that. So through your collecting then, mm. it sounds like maybe that led you towards starting yeah. a gallery. Yeah, it did. I mean, I was doing everything. I was sort of doing consultations in my lunch break, giving people advice, literally doing portfolio reviews in my lunch break, being approached all the time. I thought, well, why am I doing this all the time? And, you know, this is crazy. This is obviously this is more than a passing interest. And I was going to Paris Photo and fairs and auctions and what have you. And another photographer actually said, you know, you could do this. I was thinking, oh, I said, well, nice idea, but I don't know what with. And yeah, eventually it, it happened. So a little bit of investment, you know, a space, which, you know, we were there for what, three, 2009, I think we opened. We were there for a few years in Fitzrovia. So sort of before that was a thing. Sadie Coles was sort of the only person there at the time. And then I decided to sort of focus on the contemporary because when we had the gallery space in Fitzrovia, you know, I was always the sort of with the living. Okay. <laughs> and that was more of an interest to me. So it's not just about the objects and the photographs. It's about the people making them and it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And as, as lovely as vintage is, I mean, it is less problematic, I guess, and my life will probably be a lot easier. Yeah. But, you know, it's the artist as well, which you're championing, you know, that particular person and believing in what they do. So you are entering into sort of a long-term relationship. And that's something that it changes, it shifts, and not everybody sticks with you all the time. But most of the people I work with have worked with for a long time. You do come across people over and over again as well. So, yeah, that's sort of... And actually leaving that space was really good because I, as a curator, got to curate things in different spaces. So I wasn't putting pictures up on the same eight walls every other month. Yeah, I was finding the space to fit with the work, the location to fit with the work, or working on several projects all at the same time. I mean, I think in 2019 I had three exhibitions overlap. There was one in Brixton, one in Naples, and one in Arles. Wow. All at the same time, they all overlapped yeah. at one point. I couldn't have done that if I had a space because I'd be tied to that space the whole time and the overheads and everything that goes with it, which you're not relying on footfall generally. You're relying on people who, you know, know your reputation, your clients. It's not reliant on going to that specific space all the time. You don't rely on walk ins. That's recipe for disaster and for me it was good because I could also curate independently as well and do other projects that if I was just tied to a space five days a week I wouldn't be able to do so I can focus energies on specific things whether it's doing a festival or curating you know for an art fair so like the photo 50 a couple of years ago that was really great Mm -hmm. and coming up with a very specific concept and idea and putting a group show together Mm -hmm. that was wonderful 
because I was able to direct something that I was really interested in as a subject, find the artist that went with that concept mm. and deliver that. So when you were still working with the physical space mm. and even when it was the partnership gallery and then when yeah. you were solo, beyond contemporary photography, did you have a specific focus? Because I feel like you have a lot of women in your gallery. No, it was just it had to be good. We had to both agree on the on the artists and also that was the other thing. I mean, for me, there are a few artists that I wanted to work with that the partner wasn't wasn't as keen on, which are now very, very famous. So again, it's for me it was good to have that sort of direction and not have to have those conversations. I go, yeah. well, actually, I know this is good. This is what I'm <laughs> going with. No, I mean, we, group, we did some group shows where there was a mixture of things. So this is not the Chelsea Flower Show was fun. So we had artists that we didn't represent alongside those we did. So that was under a theme. We ran a competition a couple of times. We did the pre-picte Ed Cashy exhibition, the commission, which, you know, again, was a completely different thing. But no, in terms of themes, it was ongoing with two very, you know, being a creative person, you're always thinking about, things and you're seeing a lot of work Mm -hmm. so occasionally I would maybe see several different artists and think oh now that person that person that person together would do something really interesting because those three things are all interconnected in different ways visually very different but thematically very hinged very well together so sometimes you know that idea of connecting things together and putting something on like that was wasn't as possible with the space because you have your stable of artists and you're doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So it was good to free that up and not do as many shows, but really focus on artists individually and their journeys as well. So it might be helping them with a, uh, or timing something to time with something that was happening Mm -hmm. politically or, doing a crowdfunder for a book as well and and having that as part of the exhibition. So that also generated the next stage of that artist's career. Because do you feel like you're more like an agent than a gallery? There is a bit of that in a way, but no, because an agent's more likely to be looking at the commercial side of things yeah. and getting an artist's work commercially, whereas I mean, I'm looking sense, at placing my artists in museums and yeah, collections maybe rather not than... Not the sense in, yeah, an agent in the commercial no, sense, I know what but you like mean. kind of represent... You're still representing them. You are them, in a way. Not. I mean, you you kind of are the... You might be the face of, of you know, what somebody's first connection with that artist mm-hmm. and also their endorsement as well. So you think, oh, well, that person's a safe pair of hands and they're working with them. Mm-hmm. So your own reputation is really important. It's like, oh, well, they're good people. They won't be working with them unless they're interesting or unless they think they're important yeah. or that they're going places. So there's a little bit of that as well which is, is nice when somebody know, knows what you do or has come to you because of something and gone, actually, I saw this that you did and I was really curious, so I looked at your other artists and yeah. I want to buy one of these or we'd like to include this person in a show. So that's really lovely. And also for me, it's about variety because I would, if it was so formulaic and tightly bound, I would get bored. Yeah, It's not my... No, it is a lot more dynamic. And I think even when I look at your website, I see, and I guess that's why I was wondering Mm. at the start, like how you got to this point, because it is... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it is more than just... I think I think a lot of gallerists are similar. It's It's a lot of hours. It's a crazy amount of hours. Doing workshops as well. Yeah. And then you're on the panel for a lot of competitions. Yeah. Yeah. You also have a festival. Fix Festival? Yeah, Fix Photo Festival, which I had to learn online skills that I didn't <laughs> have before during the pandemic because I had to do it online. Yeah. I mean, Fix was a was basically, for me, was a solution to the beginning of Photo London. I'm thinking, well, participating in this is way out of my price range at the time. And thinking, well, what do I want to do? I want to be part of this particular event somehow. And I thought, well, maybe if I find a space and do something else Mm -hmm. to draw in the photography community from another angle, that sort of came about in a really strange way. I was invited to another exhibition at Barge House because one of uh, an artist friend who I went to university with had some work in it. Went along and I was like, why do I not know about this space? This is huge. It's great. 
it's rough and ready, but it's in the spirit of things like Arl and, yeah. and what have you. So I started to find out about what I could do. And I mean, it, my God, it was a lot of work that yeah. first year. I mean, it nearly killed me, but it was a really good way of bringing in the wider photography community by having interactive stuff, doing workshops, doing, ex- you know, having the exhibitions walking a lot up and down a lot of stairs (laughs) panel talks all kinds of things and because of the time of year being able to you know because there was only about 40 lights in the whole building Mm. being in the summer so having enough daylight for it to be viable i had a bar on the ground floor but you know we had books for sale as well so there were lots of things that people could do and be there Mm -hmm. and so much to see yeah, it was sort of an instant hit. I mean, I think opening night we had about like three thousand people through the oh door. Oh my goodness! Wow. I mean, we had to turn people away at the door. We had yeah. two guys on the door, and at one point we were at capacity, and we had to say you're going to have to wait to go yeah. in. So there was a there was a thirst for it. There was yeah, a real really appetite for it. Yeah. So again, that that was really good. And it was a really good way of being part of what was going on in London at the time, this sort of re-emergence of of Photo London, um, which had sort of gone from being in a space which wasn't very practical near Bank and then it was suddenly back. And, you know, it it was really good. And it was a really great way of giving emerging artists opportunities as well as established ones. So we had the competition. We had sort of 200 images on display plus a film running of, of entries that had been long listed. So mm. everyone felt like they were part of it, which was really lovely. Yeah. And that's because I think sometimes sustained. a gallery space can be as much as it offers a lot of opportunities, it can be a bit restrictive at times. Yeah. And I think a festival really removes a lot of those boundaries. Yeah, and it? it it puts sort of the social element into it. It meant that photographers could talk to photographers. And of course at a fair, the last thing you want to do is bring a portfolio to anything. Yeah. Uh, the worst thing you can possibly do is go up to somebody in a, in a photography <laughs> fair and go, can I show you my work? No. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, it was really good. And it was instantly, you could feel the energy and people wanting to be part of it. And, wanting thinking okay next year i'm going to be in this Mm -hmm. it was lovely but it is a lot of work and it does need funding i mean it's not something you can do and also the price of putting anything staging anything in london just goes up and up Mm -hmm. even with the pandemic and half of the city empty it seems at the moment rent is still a lot they're still sort of trying to make the shortfall by charging astronomical rents for short time you know short periods so but it was it was a great different thing to do. You mentioned Photo Fifty before, yes, and the I guess the, the big curation that you did there. So Photo Fifty is part of the London it's Art Fair. It's part of the London Art Fair. So it's sort of the start of the art calendar, yeah. really. So the first major fair of the year. It's in January. The Business Design Centre in Islington. And on the top floor, they have this Photo Fifty show. And yeah, I mean, I I wanted something that didn't do the obvious so they invited you to curate yeah so what well i mean myself and quite a few other curators actually pitched i actually went to the photo 50 the year before was chatting with the director of the fair and said i'd love to curate this one year and said well you know send me a proposal like okay yeah you're on and so it was lovely because it's something that i'd like to do again in an sort of occupy the void i'd like to do part two yeah and part three and part four because actually what the whole thing was about was very interesting and for that particular edition i set parameters with which i stuck to in terms of who but also what it was about so it was about gaston bachelard's poetics of space so the whole exhibition was about those concepts in that book however i only exhibited women over 50 yeah, which quite an interesting people were choice. crying out for actually. I mean, the response yeah. was huge, and the reason being is that once you're over thirty in the art world, you'll you can't emerge really. Mm. Um, I think probably as a woman, it's more difficult. as a woman definitely. You know, it's it's you know obviously you get lots of women who raise their kids and they get back into the uh, you know into the art market or they they've consistently been making but haven't had opportunities because lots of usually middle-aged white guys have had all the shows and all the big retrospectives and all the 
attention. And also that people expect a certain type of work from women, which I found even when I was at university, I used to rail against and say, look, I'm not making pictures about my periods. I'm not interested in that. (laughs) Um, Despite the head of painting trying to make me do that. And I was like, my work has its own power and it doesn't have to be about this. So I made sure there weren't flowers in it, for example. The first thing that you saw at the opening of the show was Sandra's images of architecture. So Sandra Jordan, you know, so the last thing people expect is the, oh, well, architectural photography, isn't that what men do? So it was wonderful. And it's sort of the whole concept of the show you experience physically as well as psychologically. So you started externally, you started outside and then you went into the home and beyond and into the psyche and then literally right through until you're into sort of more ethereal concepts of space. Mm-hmm. And the palette of the exhibition went from colour to black and white. So the last room was all black and white imagery. So you had this very quiet space with the, somewhere to sit and so actually the way you felt the space, because it's all about phenomenological experience of space. So yeah. actually the whole exhibition was an experience rather than just it's on a wall and the way it was hung. So I sort of had these angled walls. So you had to literally snake and weave your way back and forth through. I didn't want something that looked like a toilet block where you just went into one booth after the other, which is often how that space had been used because it was a long, narrow space. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that to happen. So I found a different way of, and the colours of the walls changed as well. So they went from a darker blue to, to white. And again, that was sort of intentional. And, it, and we did publications, so did like a big newspaper, which was great. And yeah, I mean, the press was amazing. The response was amazing. And it sort of, yeah, people keep coming back to me because of that. So oh, that's really nice. it was lovely. Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think I could do that show 10 times over and do something different each time. Yeah. And it'd be really exciting. So yeah, as a concept, it was great. And I, I really enjoyed it. Whether or not it was just with women or, but I, I probably would. I, also using the word occupy was very much intentional mm-hmm. because there is this gap. There is this sort of, you ignore, once you hit a certain age as a woman, you're no longer relevant mm-hmm. and it's not on. No, <laughs> it's no, not true. At all. So it was, it was nice to sort of, you know, stick a fist up at the <laughs> patriarchy and go, hello, <laughs> look at, look at these apples. And, yeah. and they loved it. Because do you think in the time that you've been involved in writing about photography, collecting photography, looking at it, has there been a lot of change? There has been a lot of change. I think we've still got a long way to go, though. Yeah. I think people are demanding more. They're expecting more. I think we're... It's sort of down to the money as well, though, because big institutions have collections they need to justify. They have investments that they've made, uh, returns that, you know. But on the other side of that, I think institutions are trying to make changes in what they show. I mean, the Tate's 50-50 now, male-female, which is great. I think we've still got a ways to go, though. Do you wonder if it's also a generational thing? There's a lot of that. I mean, also the people who are buying photography generally or have bought photography are usually white and male. So again, you have too much of the male gaze. There's not enough of 50% of the planet represented. And, you know, there's a lot of empire still visible, which is obviously also problematic. (laughs) Problematic, It's interesting, actually, because I lived in Australia for a few, two and a half years, and it's interesting going back because now every space says what the land is Mm -hmm. and who it belonged past tense to. So there's an acknowledgement, at least, how helpful that is. I don't know because I don't live there anymore, but the awareness is growing. But I'm hopeful. I don't want it to be tokenistic. I think the art world does have a tendency sometimes to do things for five minutes and then go back to I think all industries is whatever's yeah, trending. Does. Yeah, exactly. So again, it's how do you use it? How do you how do you maximize that impact and keep it going forward and keep the conversation going at the same time? Yeah. Whether that's through who you represent or who you champion or what you show or how you talk about it, whether it's in an exhibition or in a talk or a, any other way of communication on social media, for example. 
social media has had a massive impact mm-hmm. in terms of sales. Maybe not so much though, because people are still buying the same stuff. Yeah. I think that's the disconnect. I think a lot of people are seeing certain things and expecting to see those things in real time in museums and things. And they're not yet. Mm-hmm. There's still a big gap. There's different economies all operating at the same time and they don't always cross over. Yeah. And the younger generation, you know, YouTube is its own economy, mm-hmm. huge economy, which a lot of people in the art world have no concept of at all. Yeah, very true. You know, I mean, there are young YouTubers who the BBC can't afford. <laughs> I mean, that in itself, anybody over 40 or 50 would go, huh, what? Yeah. But that's true. So, and, and same with, you know, and we all love to hate influencers, but they have, they have influence, they have influence <laughs> and they're making a lot of money. Thank you very much. So it's, the structures are different. And I think that's where the art world is is sort of still trying to figure out where they fit. I wanted to ask you about your new show, actually. So obviously with Corona, everything's shut down. A lot of things yeah. weren't happening. But you had a big show just came out of, can you call it post-COVID now? It's kind of post-COVID a little bit. Oh, what, Roy's exhibition? The Roy Meta, Roy yeah, Revival London. Revival, yeah. I mean, so Roy, I mean, meeting Roy was through Fix. Oh, really? Yeah. So Roy had entered a, the Fixed Photo Awards and came second, as it turned out. And when I was curating the space for the winner's gallery, so the top three, mm-hmm. Roy's work was in that. And the way that I hung that on the wall was sort of in a checkerboard style, which hadn't occurred to him in terms of like the way the work was sort of because it was an image and text and not all the same width. And I thought this would be quite interesting to kind of play with this idea of looking up and down and the words and the, you know, creating space, but also pulling all this work together. And he loved the curation and we had a mentoring session and he said, oh, well, I've got this project that, you know, his book's come out and I'd love for you to curate the exhibition. I was like, okay, send me the pictures because at the time the book hadn't come out and, um, and as it turned out, we had to wait, <laughs> uh, Of course, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. However, yeah, Revival, what, 1989 to 1993, I mean, incredible work. Pictures all taken in and around Brent. Um, so where is Brent? Because I don't so know where Brent is. Brent, oh, now, Brent is... Mm, it's a borough of London, it's isn't it? It's a borough it? of London. It's one of the, I think it, is, it might actually be the most diverse borough in, in London, or one, definitely one of them. Roy grew up there. Yeah. So he was in his 20s, young student, medium format camera and 35mm, but mostly medium format, taking black and white shots of his community, you know, doing documentary as it should be done in depth and with a real connection rather than just parachuting in for a fortnight to some far-flung country where you don't know anything or any of the local customs or people. You know, these are his people. He's part of that community. And going back to something 30 odd years later yeah things look very different and i said to him send me send me the work don't send me the book because i don't see someone else's edit send me the images and then this wonderful space so how many photos did you see at the start then quite a lot and i've seen a lot more since because a lot more have been scanned and emerged and and what have you and he's actually found more vintage silver gelatins which are gorgeous as well Mm. really beautiful so there's this whole treasure trove of those. Not all the images, certain ones, but, you know, uh, some absolute classics in there. And the work was just, I mean, it was so hard to select because I wanted all of it. Yeah. I mean, it was... I mean, it's a time capsule, really, isn't it? From- it's a time capsule. It's lovely because it's pre-mobile phones. It's pre-everyone having 12 devices on them yeah. all at the same time. People are either engaged in what they're doing or engaged directly with the camera. They're fully present in a way that people aren't anymore. They're focused on what they're doing and who they are, you know. Yeah. And there isn't this sort of, I know how to look to be photographed. You don't get sort of silly pouts and twisting to the side and all that nonsense that people sort of know how to do now. That People who are aware and used to having their photograph taken, this is a time where people generally, you know, use one roll of film a year. Mm-hmm. So 
it's very natural. And if it's the start of the 90s or end of the 80s, start of the 90s, yeah. didn't even have the internet then. No. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone's in their world. Yeah. The wider world isn't necessarily a relevant yeah. at all. You know, you're getting by, you're surviving day to day. And it's normal working class people going about the business and being families. And, and what was lovely about it was so many of the images. I mean, I, I, I looked at it and saw all these different themes within the work, which, you know, you sort of, as a curator, you sort of think, okay, I'm going to start to pull these things together. And one of the things that I kept coming back to was this sense of connection and touching which of course for the last two years people weren't allowed to do. So one of the walls was all about connection and sort of hung in an asymmetric way. So it sort of flowed left to right, sort of like a wave of imagery where you had like arms and people holding each other and dancing and people holding on to things. And yeah, it was gorgeous. That sort of sense of physical connection was really missed and people really gravitated towards it. Yeah, I mean, the space was great. I'd gone down to see it. I had to curate it from a video and a plan because oh. we couldn't go to the space. Oh, yeah, of course. And so when I finally did get to go to the space, there was a wonderful exhibition that the National Portrait Gallery had put on there prior to, to our show going up. Mm. Yeah, and that was also fantastic with portraits of people from the area, which was really a mixture of photography and painting. So I finally got to be in the space, but there's nothing, <laughs> nothing more wonderful than when you're, you know, you've envisaged something and done your plans. And I always do a 3D sort of physical plan to yeah. scale because that's how my brain works. And they actually kept it on longer because people were so responsive to the exhibition. They oh, kept nice. it on an extra week or so. Yeah, we had so many school groups going in. I mean, also for younger people. So we managed, what was wonderful about it was managed to find some of the people in the photographs mm. or Roy to get leads. And he re-photographed some of the subjects who oh, were in his nice. early yeah. pictures, which is wonderful. Uh, so that's ongoing. Just seeing kids reacting to it, you know, without mobile phones and and the internet, like how kids were then, you yeah. know, it's really lovely. The response was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. And we had a gospel singer at the opening as well. Oh, and it cool. was it was very, very cool. But the things that people were picking up on was quite interesting. Like there was one image of a interior of, of a house and the sort of kitchen and TV and all the objects in that room. And throughout the course of the opening, you know, at least a dozen people said, Oh, we had one of those and we had one of those. <laughs> you know, there's that real sense of nostalgia, like, oh, I remember those sorts of things in my house or at that time. Because yeah. everything everything's so samey now, you know. Those sort yeah. of maximalist sort of interiors are, are sort of frowned upon these days. It's all everything's got to have white walls and as little personality as possible. And this is all like, you know, cacophony of, even though it's in black and white, of pattern and colour and texture. Yeah, it was lovely. It was great to have a show on for a decent length of time as well. No, it sounds like there was a really good response to it. It really was. Yeah, it was wonderful. And we had curators come and see the work as well, which is great. And it's part of the archive now. And, yeah, it should be in more collections, though, because I think that particular period of London history, not alone British history, is, isn't very well collected, especially from a photographer from a community that's diverse, because mm. most of what we have in a lot of collections is, is very white and it's very middle class, middle class yeah. and not very representative of the place that we live in mm. still. Yeah, and I guess London is famously diverse, so to not have that like, kind of work seriously. represented yeah. is and a bit so counterintuitive. It should be in, in, in some major collections for that reason alone, but also the pictures are stunning. Yeah. You know, making a decision on which pictures is really a tough one. I can imagine. Because I think as well, when you shot film, particularly back then, yeah. you know, you really yeah, thought about it before count. you took a photo. Yeah, they had to count. And if you were taking photos, it was because you knew how to do it. So. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't this sort of, you know... I just hold the shutter down. Finger on the shutter. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, sort of scattergun it across the place. Yeah, I mean, it's contact sheets. Like, explaining a contact sheet to a kid's hilarious. Let alone cassette tape or a CD. What? I mean, that floppy <laughs> disk, seriously? And also shooting from the hip as well. One, one thing that's lovely about Roy's work is the images are taken from a lower vantage point. Oh, okay. So you do get an intimate sort of feeling, especially like when he's in churches, he's often crouched down and he's taking pictures. But also because he's shooting from the hip and looking down at his camera, the person being photographed is less self-conscious mm. because they don't feel their whole body language changes. The minute you put something up to your eye, yeah, 
people change. But the fact he was looking down, there was less of that. So you do get more of a, it feels more real as a result because people are more relaxed. And they're used to him. He said, you know, he said it was there, you know, I was in and out and people just got used to me. Yeah. being around and taking pictures which now we sort of take for granted but then you know having a medium format camera wouldn't have been very usual mm. yeah you would have stood out for a bit at yeah. least initially yeah but then it was like oh okay yeah it's Roy and he was very mindful about what he did and didn't sort of put out there you know in terms of how private a moment was as well so when we were going over all the vintage material, you know, there were quite a few things. I was like, oh, this is kind of amazing. So yeah, I always felt that I, I didn't sort of put that in a selection for the book because I felt that was too private a moment. And I was like, oh, oh okay. that's interesting. So so it was, yeah, it was a wonder of a project in terms of how much is there. There's a lot of imagery, but yeah. it also tells so many stories. So you said the response was really good. Have you had then contact from curators and other people? Yeah, that we said, have. We discovered it through this exhibition. I mean, it's been shown in Germany. It's on an exhibition at the moment in a museum in Germany. Roy's working on some other portraiture at the moment. And I think that will continue. I mean, the book had a huge response. It's got tons of, garnered lots and lots of press. The exhibition has been really well received. And I think that, again, that's my job as well to kind of continue pushing that and letting people know about that because... It's an important body of work. It's an important record of a specific time in the UK from a specific vantage point that perhaps we are overlooking a little. And I think it's really important that it shows. And it shows lots of different communities together and it shows real life. And I think we do get a bit sidetracked with the fantastical sometimes. Or even just how Instagram is only showing how great everything is all the well, time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, the everyday can be wondrous, but with I think sometimes, I mean, it's kind of essential to let something breathe for a while and go back to it. But yeah, anyone wants to buy some, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here. Well, I thought a good way to finish, perhaps, because of the, I guess, your wealth of knowledge and experience in photography Mm -hmm. is maybe for other photographers that haven't yet got their work out there or they're wondering, well, how do I get discovered? How does someone see my work? And I've had some exhibitions or I've produced all these projects but it's just it's just not happening for me and i mean we both do portfolio reviews yeah, we we do. Still i mean they're always way. really useful because it's just getting your work in front of somebody does help i think also it's about having the patience to think that i think one of the myths with social media is people think well they've got a hundred thousand followers therefore they've got this huge exposure and they're dead successful well, actually, they're probably not as successful as you think. They're probably not earning as much money as you think. It's probably not necessarily equating revenue. And in terms of making work, most people work for at least a decade before they're discovered, at least. And I think the expectation of the quick fix and it being, all oh, right. Also, curators and museums want to see that you're going to last. You're going to be around in 10 years' time. Yeah. You can't expect something to happen overnight. It's always good to be part of like a collective and do some work, you know, self-directed stuff and putting things together. Participate. If you're interested in a gallery or certain types of work or whatever, you know, go and support people. You know, if someone's got a crowdfunder, support it. Mm. If someone's got a talk, turn up. I get people all the time who approach me and have never been to one of my exhibitions. Well, yeah. you're obviously not that into me because you've not bothered to come and see a show. Oh, no, but if it's your work, ah. And there's this sort of very selfish approach which isn't helpful in the long term because it doesn't take long for people to figure that out. And it's good to champion others because, I mean, if you go to some, if you go to New York and you go to a neighbourhood where there's like 10 galleries, they'll all have an opening on the same night because they know it's good business. Yeah. <laughs> Because they can't possibly only sell, their clients will not only buy from them. They might only buy with them and ask them to buy something from another gallery. But the galleries know it's good business. Mm. Whereas if you're often closed off and sort of just promoting yourself and just thinking about yourself all the time, actually you can miss opportunities. Mm. And when you meet somebody, engage them in conversation about something other than yourself and other than photography find out who they are what they're about are you compatible you know it's a relationship if you don't connect with somebody you're not going to want to work with them 
Yeah, I 100% agree. You know? And people are busy. They can't, I have 30 people to keep track of all the time. I'm one human being. (laughs) So if you want to book some time, book some time with me. Fine. That's worked into my business plan because it's the only way sometimes I will always look at something, but I can't send you feedback. I haven't got time. It takes me longer to delete the emails that <laughs> I don't want, let alone reply to the ones I need to. And then on top of that, send people feedback. It's, if you want feedback, you know, you get that through tutorials, through your peers. If you want that feedback from me, you need to book that time. And that's, there might be somebody perfect for you or somebody that you should think about or an approach you should think about doing. I think sometimes people have this fixed idea about what success is. It has to be a book. It has to be an exhibition. It has to be this. Well, yeah, but the order might be different than you expect it to be. And things do take time to mature. You might have finished a project, but it might take two years to bring that project out into the open and then to let it have some legs. You might have finished two others in the meantime, but that doesn't matter. Things have to have their time in the sun. Again, you know, Roy never thought his work would resurface and and have the response it did. Yeah, 30 years later. He was like, I never in my (laughs) dreams did I think this would happen. You know, it's it's that thing. It's like, well, and here's something from my new album. Yeah. Well, people want to get used to the stuff they love first and, and get to know you and see that consistency. I don't turn up to see a photographer and say, can you take a picture of me? Give me the picture. But people think it's fine to say, oh, can I take you for a coffee? And then just expect a consultation. So it's it's about having mutual respect and saying, well, actually, I respect that person's opinion. Or it might be that you... Sometimes that's how it's worked. I've written text for books. Someone said, oh, I love the way you wrote this. Would you be interested in writing about my work? Mm-hmm. And I'll have a look at it and go, sure. And that's the start of something. Some of the people I've mentored over time, I now represent. Yeah, okay. So it's all relative, but there isn't an ABC for everybody. Everybody's coming at, their work's coming from different angles mm-hmm. there experience there you have to be able to talk about your work you have to be able to be ready for someone to compare your work to somebody else's because that might be a curator's way into the work and if someone goes no 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 it's nothing like so and so's you're kind of stopping the conversation dead it's like oh yeah i can see where you're coming from actually what i do is i do this as well ah okay bring someone into the conversation don't just be defensive you know listen you know, you can learn something from everybody. I mean, there's nothing more irritating than somebody being really cocky and sort of sitting down and going, oh, I'm the best thing since sliced bread and you should adore me and here's my work. And I'm thinking, okay, oh, yeah, no, I'm not wowed. Yeah. And then I've got to think of a nice way of <laughs> saying, well, have you thought about this? You know, and it, it, you have to be able to take constructive criticism. I think it's the blinkered approach and... Also thinking laterally. I think that's the big thing that keeps coming up a lot recently. Don't just think about the photo world. What's your work about? Who is it for? Does it connect to another industry? Is it about another subject that's nothing to do with photography? If so, where's that audience? How do you get it to them? Who's going to be interested in this? Why should it exist? Why should anyone look at it? You should be able to answer those things straight off. But thinking beyond this formula that everyone's got in their head that we do this show and then you get this gallery and then you get a solo show and then suddenly you've got an exhibition at the tape. Yeah. It doesn't work (laughs) like that. And it's a big, big industry with so many layers. Portfolio reviews are great. Mentoring is great because sometimes it's just about looking at things and having somebody looking at something objectively Mm -hmm. and giving you, being open to ideas and different approaches and having that, emotional distance that you can offer that advice that's really good because often it's harder it's easier to give someone else advice than to take your own yeah absolutely and that's good to have that and just be positive turn up i think that's the main thing be part of the community support others and turn up or if you say you're going to turn up actually turn turn up up. (laughs) like i never promise if i'm not sure i say look i'm not going to promise you because i'm not sure If I am going to come, I'll be there and I'll say I'll be there and I'll be there. But if I'm not sure, I'll tell you I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And that's important. And also 
think how you're communicating. Don't assume that that person is glued to their email 24 hours a day. Yeah, or that they've seen your work or that they know anything about it. Yeah. Engage. You know, like something they post. Have a conversation. That engagement's really interesting because you learn something about that person. You know, most of the time, the people who I know very well in photography, we talk about photography, but we talk about a lot of other stuff. And that's just as interesting. Like be into, you know, be open to see what that person's about. They're not just this one dimensional thing. They're not just a gate. And, you know, people think that curators are gatekeepers. Not really. We've, we still have people who won't talk to us. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, there's a hierarchical system in place and it's going to be there for a while. I think so. And not even a har- not even just a hierarchical thing and saying, oh, you're, yeah. you're keeping people out. It's like, can I join your friend group? Yeah. This is kind of the same. Uh-huh. It's about yeah. relationships. It's about shared interest. It's yeah. about empathy and mutual understanding. Yeah. And you know when somebody is talking to you just because they want something out of you or their emails approach you because they want something from you and it's only one-sided. It's only in one direction. And that is a big red flag. So, well, no, there needs to be a mutual respect there and a mutual connection somewhere along the way. But it might not just be photography. You know, I often have some, I mean, some of the people who I'm really, really close to, we've bonded over music, over painting, over sculpture, over dancing. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I don't need to tell you. Yeah. Like that's completely important as well. Just being a human being, not being a vampire. (laughs) I had a conversation with someone once who, I saw a a very big photo event and was with their partner, who's quite a big deal, and said, oh, saw me and went, oh, thank God, a human being, you know, because they just watched people approach their partner all the time just for something, and they were having to sort of be charming. They said to me, God, it's so vampiric. That's exactly the word. You do feel like somebody wants a piece of you, and that's not a nice way to start a relationship (laughs) (laughs) it's like have a bit of fun talk about something other it doesn't mean you can't talk business i think it's different in different parts of the world as well americans have one approach europeans have another approach brits have a different approach australians probably have another approach as well i mean there's all kinds of different rules and regs but you can usually connect but i think you know a lot of these you know, having one-to-ones with people is really good. And if you go, look, I respect you enough to pay you X amount for this amount of your time to get advice and actually save me a lot of money in the long term, because my God, I've saved people some money over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Do this. Invest in yourself. It, you know, invest that hour or those series of sessions to focus and give some direction and a bit of therapy sometimes and a bit of reassurance and encouragement, you know, goes a long way because there is a bit of paranoia sometimes. Oh, you know, the photographer's going to copy my work. There's a lot of that as well, which is a bit weird, but you know, it's like you put a hundred artists in a room and one life model, everyone's going to draw a different picture. So get over it and jog on, keep going. But I think some of the best relationships and friendships and projects and outcomes that I've had in the art world have been when all those things come together. Yeah, same. I agree. Enthusiasm and and not taking ourselves too seriously as well is important. I think so. I think like you said before, it's missing that kind of human element there. And yeah. it's not just transactional. It's like, no, we need to we need to be able to get along for a long time. Yeah. So Yeah. You need to get my surreal sense of humor sometimes because <laughs> it's gonna come out. <laughs> You're gonna have to deal with that. I might say something random. But that's who I am. And that's important that you have those connections, you know, or just, yeah, just empathy for that other person too. I think there is a lot of us and them. And I think that's very, that's not very constructive as well. No, it's not. You know, with curators and and artists, but, but, you know, I'm an artist. So again, I can relate. Mm. So don't don't exclude that from my personality because that is part of who I am. Yeah. Which is often not acknowledged so again it's important to have that understanding of that person and if you don't know about that element ask them Mm -hmm. yeah be curious yeah we're only human (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think we can keep talking and talking and talking. I'm so sure. I think we can probably draw a line under it. Okay. So thanks, Laura. It was really fun, as it always is, to have oh, a chat and you. to learn a bit more about you. <laughs> Thank you. It was, it was a pretty random sat in my local with a microphone, I have to say. <laughs> now that more punters I mean, are got showing to, up, it's very too many strange looks, but I think. No, yeah. I know. They're, they're all being very um, chilled, actually, which is kind of good. That's, that's nice. I think if it was a Friday night, it'd be different. I agree, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was really good. I have to do it again sometime. Definitely. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Laura Noble. It's inspiring to hear about the variety of projects that Laura is involved with and her dedication to championing emerging artists. In the show notes, you can find links to Laura's social media, website, and some of the subjects we spoke about. Laura has an exhibition of her paintings in September, so follow her Instagram to keep up to date. And if you'd like to know more about this or previous episodes of the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Subtext and Discourse Art World Podcast is streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else would appreciate it too, why not send them a link to the show? That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.